0: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern, and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our
1: guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective.
0: Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated, like Andrew and me, to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. In this episode, we'll be interviewing Dr. Martin Bednar, a neurosurgeon, and researcher who has been working at finding new treatments for dementia. He will help us understand dementia better. And then we'll have a short segment in our Lineker for the Laity uh, episode on how, 50 years after Humanae Vitae, contraception is affecting the health of adolescents and young women. But first, we'll take a look at a recent news item. Something that's been in the news and we've seen used a lot out there are the electronic nicotine delivery systems or vaping. Or what some people said looks like people sucking on a laser pointer. (laughs) (laughs) So the question with this article is, does it help people quit smoking? That's been one of the promises of this new delivery system. Have you heard that, Andrew?
1: I have. I've had a lot of people who come into the office with the intention of quitting smoking. They said, well... I've tried to cut down, but now I've switched to vaping, so that's better, right? And, you know, I, I've, I can't give them a full endorsement of that because it just hasn't been studied to, to be shown that.
0: Well, here's a study uh, looking at these systems, and they collected uh, 1,284 adult smokers in the United States between summer of 2015 and then 2016. And they looked at those who were vaping, or using the electronic delivery systems to see how many of them, when they contacted them a year later, had been off of cigarettes or vaping for at least 30 days. And then they compared them to people who were just smoking cigarettes to see if there was any difference. And the surprising answer was there were probably more people still smoking using the vaping than were smoking using cigarettes. So it not only didn't help reduce smoking there was a non-statistical increase in smoking so there's no evidence in this fairly large study that it helps you quit smoking
1: and you know what that that resonates with the experience i've had working with patients you know i hear a lot of talk about the vaping because you can pick how much nicotine contents in there and i think that's how it's marketed that well i'll slowly cut down on the most addictive part of this and then it'll be easier to quit But in reality, as this study shows, that's just not the case. And and it might be because it's even easier. A lot of people who smoke, it's it's become socially isolating. Yes. You can't smoke in restaurants. A lot of people choose not to smoke in their homes around children, which is, those are good decisions. But if you're vaping, probably a lot of those barriers aren't there. So it's even more convenient.
0: I have wondered about that because I see a lot of people walking, holding these in their hands, and then they duck in somewhere and take a puff of it and then keep walking. So
1: I guess at least this, this much is known. If the intention is to truly become tobacco and nicotine-free, vaping is not the best way to do it.
0: Correct. So there's no evidence yet, at least in this study, that it's healthier than smoking cigarettes. Now we'll move on to Andrew's patented healthcare tip of the day.
1: Yes, I've got another good one today from the USPSTF, United States Preventative Screening Task Force. And this is actually a combination of two recommendations they made in June of 2012 and 2017, respectively, regarding screening for obesity. So everyone knows about obesity, but they recommend screening both adults, and and the second one is for children six years old and older.
0: Let me guess, screening for obesity involves scale. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it, it does. It, you know, And to some extent, the, the numbers don't lie. So many people, you know, obesity is one of the things I try and talk to folks about a lot in my practice because it's something that affects almost all of us. It's In America, we know that about 80% of adults struggle with their weight and are classified as either overweight or obese. But unfortunately, now we even know that about one-third of children are either classified as overweight or obese. So this is something that's becoming ubiquitous and, and should be dealt with.
0: Yes, I, I can believe that that many children are overweight or obese. And it's amazing when they travel to other countries in the world, I don't see it.
1: I think there's a lot of reasons for that, and I'm sure most of us and, and our listeners have seen things in the news speculating as to why that may be. I, I think as far as the top three things you need to know for this, the first thing would be definitions. Uh, these terms, obesity, overweight, get thrown out a lot. But the definitions are based on hard numbers. So for adults, it's based on the BMI or body mass index. That is basically a calculation of a patient's weight in kilograms divided by their height in meters squared. And so it yields a two-digit number, usually two digits, <laughs> not always, and... Um, and, and there's ranges for normal, overweight, and obese. So normal would be 18.5 to 24.9. Overweight is 25 to 25.9. And anything over 30 is obesity.
0: You mean 29.9. Oh, I'm sorry, 29.9. <laughs> <Yes>. That's correct. 18.5 <laughs> to 25,
1: 25 to 30, and above 30, right? effectively. And then for children, it's not done on a simple calculation, but it's on their growth curves. Ah, so sure. up to 85 percentile is normal weight. 85 to 95 percentile is overweight, and then 95 percentile and above is obese. And so it's a simple mathematical equation, but then what do you do with that information is the biggest question.
0: And what do you do with it?
1: Well, the the recommendation is to screen for it, but potentially to, to lead to some changes in counseling. There's no time like the present because carrying extra weight around for years and decades really leads to a lot of problems, cardiovascular problems being a, a large one. So I wanted to go over some of the factors that increase the risk of obesity, and the corollary to each of these are things that you can change to minimize your risk of obesity and even to lose weight. So for children, number, and these are not in a particular order, but one of the things that increases obesity in children is having obese parents.
0: I was going to guess that.
1: So there, there's definitely a genetic Uh, heritability that occurs here somewhere between 40 and 85 percent of obesity in children is due to genetics.
0: And is that due to a body that handles uh, foods differently or is it because of somebody who thinks about and looks at and uses food differently?
1: You know it's hard to say because they don't necessarily have genetic markers that this is the obesity gene or genes but it's based on studies that look at families and twin studies where twins may be separated at birth. And so we can infer how much is nature, how much is nurture. But there's definitely a large component. At least half, we think, is due to genetics. Things uh, also just from the American lifestyle that increase the risk of obesity, calories and drinks, sugary drinks Mm -hmm. especially, even things that may be healthy juices – I recommend treating juice for children like a treat, like birthday cake. Yes, it's not something that maybe, maybe back in the back in the day, juice was part of the normal diet. You should have juice at meals. Yes, but in reality now it should be treated more like a treat, and so minimizing calories in drinks because
0: it's almost like liquid sugar.
1: It it really is. Even if it's healthy, you know, a lot of people want to cut down on refined sugars, but if you're eating enough fruits or having enough smoothies, that's a lot of sugar. Well, natural, even just or orange otherwise. juice. Yeah. I
0: know athletic trainers often cut that out of a lot of their clients' diets, and it helps them to lose weight right away.
1: I've, I've had a lot of folks who simply cut out that one or two-drink treat effectively every day, whether it's a, a fancy coffee or it's some kind of drink in the afternoon. Each of those are 200 calories. That's a pound a week. You know, So we, we know on average Americans gain three to five pounds a year when they shouldn't be gaining any weight. It should stay about stable. Yes. And that would totally add up with just the sugary drinks. Yes. Portion sizes and fast food are other things. If you eliminate fast food, and I recommend for portion sizes, whatever you'd be prone to eat, maybe try and eat two-thirds of it. Ah. You know, there's there's a big pressure to not waste food. I definitely was raised with that mentality. (laughs) But at the same time, if it's hurting your health, you're not doing a benefit for the world by not wasting. You should just take a smaller plate not enough sleep. That's one of the things I'm passionate about because as Americans, so many of us don't get enough sleep on and a regular basis. it makes us basis. hungrier. It really does, and it, and it lowers our ability to make good decisions. To say no. To say no. Good, even financial decisions, good decisions with your life, word choices,
0: and so. <laughs> <laughs> so if you hear any on this show, you might infer yeah. that one of us isn't sleeping enough. More sleep is good. <laughs> yes.
1: Uh, Screen time is one of the big things, especially with children. There's not really an amount of screen time that I say, oh, up to this amount of time is great. I just encourage folks to minimize it. And really, if it's getting more than an hour or two a day, it's definitely too much screen time. Less physical activity is a common cause, so more is better. And then some medications also cause obesity, especially medications related to psychological conditions. Yes. And so those are all risks, but one thing one thing also, I guess, would be a risk are official medical problems, such as hormonal abnormalities. I, I have a lot of people who want to come in and check their thyroid because they have trouble losing weight. How often is that the cause of obesity? You know, we the best estimates is it's less than 1%. Yes. So for 99 out of 100 of us, it's not the thyroid. It's just a million really poor or really good choices on a daily basis that's going to affect how
0: our, our weight is. Well, thank you. That's very practical and relevant. And before we go to our first break, I want to pose to you our trivia question of the day. And it's a short question, so I'll make it a little longer. <laughs> DNA is present in, in, present in the nucleus, the, the middle, the, the brain of every cell. But it's also present one other place, at least in the cell. And what part of the cell contains that DNA that is inherited only from your mother, not your father. So there's some part of each cell in your body, uh, except for blood cells, perhaps, um, that have DNA that is only from mom. What part of your body is this? Uh, For now, we'll take a break and come back with our special guest on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. We welcome today Dr. Martin Bednar. If I were to read his curriculum vitae, we wouldn't have any time for questions. So I'm just going to summarize and say he's quite an impressive physician who's a neurosurgeon. He has a PhD in cardiovascular pharmacology. He is a dementia researcher with decades of experience in that. He's also a fellow member with Dr. Chris Stroud and me in Legatus, and I met him in April of 2018 at the Unite to Cure conference at the Vatican. And not only that, but he's a children's book author. Martin Bednar, welcome to Dr. Doctor.
2: Thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you about Alzheimer's disease.
0: Oh, you're welcome. And you shared some facts with me that I'd like to share with our listeners before we dive into questions. And that is that every year in this country it costs over one quarter trillion dollars, that's trillion with a T-R, dollars per year, and that another quarter trillion dollars of free care is given by 16 million unpaid Americans who help care for patients with dementia, most of whom have Alzheimer's. And in the data you gave me, it says that every 65 seconds, a new person develops Alzheimer's, dementia, and that in the next 30 years, among Americans age 65 and over, the number of dementia patients will nearly triple. So, so Martin, do we have an epidemic of dementia in this country?
2: We do, and I, I would venture to say it's, it's, it's in the world. It's not just restricted to the United States as if this were a disease exclusively of, uh, of our country alone. One of the things mentioned is we have diagnosis of five and a half million people in the United States that have Alzheimer's, but if you go worldwide, the overall number is about 50 million. Uh, one of the greatest risk factors for Alzheimer's disease is age, and it's uh, certainly one that we cannot control. So <laughs> no. as the world, it, it, right? And so, as the world ages, the 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 incidence of Alzheimer's just steadily increases. So, 50 million people have this, and and you know we're, we're at a real crossroads too, because this is actually the first time in history that the number of people 65 years of age and older worldwide outnumber the number of people five years and younger. That's never happened before in the history of the world. Uh. So we all see uh, a very aging world, aging population, and uh, Alzheimer's disease is becoming more and more prevalent. Um, in fact, it's, um, it's, it's such a, 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 a global issue right now that five years ago the g8 when they met yes they declared alzheimer's disease to be a global priority and they set up efforts to cure or modify the disease by 2025 oh it sounds like a long ways off but it's not
0: no um, not at all well and so, how, how do you what is the hallmark of alzheimer's like for our lay listeners what does it mean to have it what are the things that they would see in somebody
2: right so that's a that's a great question and um when we when when we use the word Alzheimer's disease right now we're going to use that to mean it's dementia of the Alzheimer's type okay um because you can have Alzheimer's disease without having any symptoms we can go into that but to actually have Alzheimer's dementia which is again about 5.5 million people in the US 50 million people worldwide um that has a very specific definition to it it means that you really have such a decline in your overall mental ability, your ability to think, reason, uh, and and communicate, um, that it is now affecting your activities of daily life. Uh, And so it has to affect two domains uh, of your cognition. And these have to be so significant that your daily functioning, whatever it was before, has now been significantly reduced. So it, it has to have those two hallmarks for that. And when we look at what causes that, that's from a clinical standpoint, um, and uh, and everything we know from from looking at people's brains under the microscope and and uh, in in real life, um, there's two abnormal proteins that are made. Um, the proteins themselves have important body functions, but they become uh, aggregated, they um, they congeal together, um, they form toxic species, and they don't have any longer their intended important use in the body, and they're called amyloid or A-beta, amyloid beta, and tau, T-A-U, two abnormal proteins, and you need to have both of these to have the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. Things have gotten so sophisticated, and our knowledge of the disease is so advanced that we can now image each of these proteins in a person, through um, uh, an imaging a scan, um, not much different than a CAT scan. Wow. Uh, and, and actually see if people have these proteins for the first time. Even five years ago, um, this was only available for one of the proteins and 15 years ago it wasn't available at all. So we've made terrific strides in understanding that Alzheimer's disease is, is these, these abnormal deposits of, of amyloid beta and tau and they uh, progress over a number of decades to the point where your, your ability to think, reason, and communicate is impaired sufficiently to affect your activities of daily living. That's, that's Alzheimer's dementia.
1: Well, Martin, do we know anything about what puts a person at risk for this? Is, is there something that causes these proteins to be deposited? Is there something that we can do to avoid putting ourselves at risk?
2: Right. So there, there are modifiable risk factors and there are those that are not modifiable. So the, the not modifiable, we touched on one, which is your age. There's nothing we can do about that. The other is there are certain, um, genes or variations of genes, uh, that can put you at greater risk, sometimes far greater risk. I would say that they're not modifiable, but I'll, I'll put an asterisk in there because we're getting very close to being able to modify those genes. But then on the other hand, you know what can you modify? Say you think you, know, you have a greater risk or you just you wanna be as good as you can be to, to reduce your risk of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, one of the things we always say is that a healthy heart means a healthy brain. So we're looking <laughs> at risk factors, your regular exercise, keeping your cholesterol down, blood pressure that's within a reasonable range, uh, trying to avoid diabetes, another epidemic worldwide, especially in the U.S., social and cognitive engagement. Social networks are incredibly important to people, and uh, isolation can lead to uh, um, curtailing of those networks and can sort of uh, um, accelerate the the incidence of Alzheimer's disease, the emergence of it. Uh, Education as well is a modifiable risk factor. People just think if you're educated, if you have a social network, you're actually building up a cognitive reserve, if you will. So it won't stop those proteins from, from accumulating, but what it will do is make you more resilient to them. Uh, and, and we've seen this time and time again where just because you have the proteins doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be affected cognitively. Um, there's a very famous study out in, in the Midwest that was done with, with, uh, with clergy uh, the Nun study, ah. um, which they spent through repetitive testing over years, donated their brains to science. Some of them were well into their 90s, even 100 years old. Their brains under a microscope looked like they had Alzheimer's disease, but they functioned very well.
0: Wow. Because, so that's encouraging.
2: Yes. They had cognitive reserve um, for whatever reason. Again, we think educational status, uh, low cardiovascular risk factors. A social network, cognitive engagement, uh, avoiding uh, um, other things like head injuries, for example, will, will, will reduce that risk as much as you can.
1: Now, Martin, you had mentioned head injuries. I've seen recently that the CTE, the chronic traumatic encephalopathy that has made the news because of professional football players, that we found tau proteins in the brains of those individuals. Is there a link between repetitive injury and dementia
2: there is uh and it's a great point to bring up um we, yes we hear this a lot about the nfl and um but really it's any sort of head injury and there's even uh some data to say even folks that play soccer and do those headers oh those i headers. saw the
0: world cup recently and oh my goodness yes. those headers on 50 yard kicks all i was thinking was cte and tall protein when it was <laughs> happening. <laughs>
2: Exactly. And this is this is very interesting. So it's got its own name and an acronym CTE chronic traumatic encephalopathy and as you say it's it's actually a very specific accumulation of the tau protein. Exactly the same as Alzheimer's disease, but it differs from Alzheimer's disease in that the other protein isn't increased, the ah, amyloid beta, the A beta. Yes. And it happens in a much younger group of people and um the, the tau accumulations are much more scattered than what you find in Alzheimer's disease. So, what we call this, um, and, and other other types of dementia that that are related to tau, but aren't CTE, we don't have the A beta. We call them tauopathies. Oh yes. It's tau pathologies. So we call them tauopathies, and this is one extreme example of what we would call iatrogenic or induced chronic. Traumatic encephalopathy is an iatrogenic or induced uh, form of dementia. dementia. Um, but there are other types of dementia, for example, frontotemporal dementia, which is only tau as well. And, uh, and that leads to its own um, set of, of, of findings. Well, let's go so back to dementia.
0: Alzheimer's dementia. The thing that most family members see is that it changes the personality dramatically. Can you explain how or why that happens
2: Yes. Um, uh, Well, you can think about this as as being a process that's ongoing for probably 20 or 30 years um, before there are actual symptoms. And different people get sort of slightly different areas of accumulation. As these toxic species of amyloid, tau, and other uh, proteins uh, accumulate, um, there is a reduction or, or, or a killing of the, of the neurons, the brain cells, in those particular areas that cease to function. A very classical one is in the area of memory. So everyone that's heard about Alzheimer's disease thinks of memory. Certainly. Um, but there are other areas of the brain that are also affected, for so example, the frontal lobes, which can change your personality.
0: So it's the frontal lobe damage that leads to. Do all Alzheimer's patients have damage throughout the brain?
2: Eventually, yes. And you might imagine any sort of frontal lobe injury has the potential, at least, to cause personality changes. Think of um, the classic example of Phineas Gage in the year 1848. Yes. Where he had um, a a, a rod explode and go right through his skull and uh, changed his personality forever. He was an even-tempered, mild-mannered person, and he turned into... Uh, uh, someone quite different at the end of his life um, because of those injuries. He survived them, um, but he was never the same and was um, quite aggressive and um, behaviorally aberrant uh, in his later life as he recovered from that injury. So,
0: Martin, um, this is tremendously fascinating. We need to take a break right now, but we'll be back with more of Martin Bednar talking about dementia on Dr. Doctor.
1: This is Dr. Docker, coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and we are returning today with our guest, Dr. Martin Bednar, neurosurgeon, talking to us today about dementia. Dr. Bednar, one of the things that I get asked a lot with folks in the office is, am I developing dementia? I've been having memory trouble, I forget where I put my keys, how, how can we help identify with patients when these, these memory issues are becoming more than just common forgetfulness and leading more towards dementia?
2: That's, that's a great question. And um, we see this particularly with baby boomers who are, <laughs> are getting of age. And um, they're very worried that every time they can't remember where in the mall they put their car uh, <laughs> or where they put their keys on the table, that is, is this the start of something? Um, they might be particularly sensitized if they have a family member who has Alzheimer's disease. So we have a lot of folks out there who maybe even unspokenly are, are quite concerned uh, anytime their, their cognitive function is, is a little bit off. And, um, and what we try to tell people is we're, we're, what you're really looking for are, are really dramatic changes as one person has put it, it's not that you can't remember where you put your car keys, but it's, you know, what are those car keys for, or, you know, it's not the uh, occasional problem of finding a word, but it's, you know, it's very significant word finding difficulties, not being able to name uh, an object that, that you should know what it is. For example, a toaster or a fork, or, driving in your neighborhood and getting lost and so these are things that if you talk to people that say yes that, that's pretty obvious to me and we say well yes these are the things that people or their loved ones should look for sometimes the, the person that's affecting isn't the first to realize it and um, it may be a spouse for example or, but, but does the or... patient
0: at some point realize it how often don't they realize
2: it Sooner or later, most people will will realize it. Um, although there's there's a lot of denial. Um, you know, uh, there's a wonderful case of, uh, of a basketball player, Bob Cousy. Oh yeah. Star for the Boston Celtics. Bob, I think right now is about 89. He was married to a, a wonderful lady for 63 years, and the last decade of her life, she had dementia. She steadfastly refused to believe that she had it. And Bob would do all the chores. Um, when they went on vacation, he would have the car shipped there so that she could see it. And he would plant plastic flowers in the garden so that it, as if she knew she was doing her chores. Oh. You know, and and people, people cope with this different ways. You know, that's, that's perhaps, you know, a, a bit of an extreme case. Most people have a sense that their mental faculties are declining. And I guess if you ask Bob Cousy's wife at the time, um you know she probably realized it too but but was in a bit of a denial about it and i think people go through those stages some longer than others
0: what type of suffering do you see both in the person with dementia and in those around the person with dementia
2: uh it's well the suffering is um almost inestimable uh there, there are you know such significant uh, um issues here where uh, people may have a diagnosis but actually at the time had minimal symptoms um, but they can start to sort of involute withdraw from from family from friends um, uh, there's um, there's a lot of anxiety and fear about what's going to happen and we see this with a lot of chronic diseases Alzheimer's Parkinson's etc um, they can go into a deep depression um, folks at the early stages of Alzheimer's disease have have great insight, and that insight cuts both ways. I mean, they can they can start to plan a little bit. They can um, think of ways to cope. Um, you know, making meeting reminders. But it also, you know, they have the insight to know that they have a disease that's going to be progressive and at this point cannot be cured, and they can go into a deep depression. Um, this can affect every member of the family. I, I, I heard at our meeting in the Vatican oh, a wonderful statement that people need to remember that if someone in the family has a disease, let's call it Alzheimer's disease here, that everybody in the family has the disease by proxy.
0: Ah, yes.
2: Everybody everybody is affected.
0: And so how does it affect the caregivers? And what advice would you have for caregivers of patients?
2: Caregivers are just such unsung heroes. Um, They are sort of the... um, the, the bedrock really of 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 coping with Alzheimer's uh, dementia and other types of dementia, they are the ones who, uh, in addition to whatever else they're they're doing in life, put those things aside and and help out the, the caregivers two things to 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 remember here is is patients and most caregivers have, in abundance, probably more than they ever knew that they had. And <laughs> yes. They probably look and say, you know, the Lord doesn't give me a cross that I can't bear. And uh, and the other part of it uh, for them is that they need to know their limits, you know, when it really is too much, and, uh, and that this really is sort of a, a marathon. And um, um, they need to take care of themselves. If they don't take care of themselves, they won't be able to take care of anybody else. Amen. Uh, So they need their time away as well. Um, They need to have their batteries recharged um, because, you know, um, people with Alzheimer's disease typically live for eight or 10 years. So this isn't something that's going to, you know, quickly progress. It's a slow, typically insidious process that goes on for quite a long time.
0: Do you think the subjective suffering of the patient with Alzheimer's dementia decreases as the disease gets worse, and their insight becomes less
2: I do I mean I think at first it it, it increases as as they still have insight, and um, things may be getting a bit worse, but at some point it peaks and um, um, they're continuing to decline, but their insight becomes less and uh, and uh, they their um, their their subject of suffering is, is is sort of remediated at that point. Um, um, they, they, they start to become in their own world. Um, I had a professor of neurosurgery I worked with at one time, and he had his very clear moments, and he had his moments where uh, he was in his own world, and he, he used to say it was like living a dream when, you, when, when, you're, when you're not having those clear moments.
0: Oh,
2: and it's... he didn't indicate there was a lot of suffering when he was in this, um, the, the more insight, again, you have, the, the more anxiety, concern sure. for yourself and for your loved ones.
1: It's, it strikes me as though there may be an inverse relationship between the suffering of the, the patient and of the caregiver. As, as the disease progresses, the, the caregiver takes on more of the burden of the disease, even from the patient.
2: I think that's great insight. I think that that's very true.
1: You know, Martin. One of the things that you might hear sometimes from a, a family member of a dementia patient, you know, Dad isn't the same person anymore. In in our contribution-oriented society, there's such a emphasis on being productive members of society. How how do you respond to this to to reaffirm the patient's personhood?
2: Yeah, I'm so glad you touched upon that. Um, Dad is is not the same person anymore. I guess clinically you could say that that's true, but they're still there. Um, look at all of us. Um, we all change throughout our lives and we're all, all of us are continuing to adapt to our changing, our changing physical and, 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 and mental state as well as the environment around us. We're doing this every day. We're not the same people anymore either. Uh, we're not the same at at 60s, we were at 40, as we were at 20. So my sense is that, you know, at, at every stage of life and at any stage of, of, of an illness, there's, there's an inherent innate dignity of the person from conception to natural death that must be upheld and respected.
0: Martin, I think something we really want to hear about is related to the treatment of this disease. From what I understand up till today, there's nothing that can reverse it and maybe even nothing that really slows it down. Why has it been so elusive to find that treatment that's going to help cure, treat, or slow down this disease?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, and and it's true. Um, But the hope is that we're making a lot of progress right now. Um, It's been so elusive because first, the disease is complicated. Um, One of the things we didn't touch upon much yet, but I'll say here, is that it's actually the unusual person who only has Alzheimer's disease. I would say probably well over half the individuals with Alzheimer's disease have another abnormal protein or something else going on for dementia. And they actually have a a diagnosis of two or three different dementias going on. Uh Uh, And one family I know from my parish And his wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and a couple of years later, we're talking, and he said, well, now she has dementia with Lewy bodies. I've never heard of that before. I said, well, actually, 20% of all dementias, and it's not unusual to have the two of them together in a single person, sometimes even three. So this really complicates things, and, you know, if you're dealing with several different diseases, you think you're treating one, and you're not getting a response to a medication, um, this could be why. The hope here, though, is that we've had some incredibly great trials, not of drug trials, but something called the the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, ADNI. It's been going on now for about 15 years, and it's given us a wealth of information about people aging, from normal aging, mild cognitive impairment, mild memory issues, to Um, spank dementia to severe dementia, and how people progress. You know, what goes on first? How can we stop this early? uh, Maybe even prevent it from happening because we see these abnormal proteins building up, but yet somebody doesn't have symptoms. So the encouraging part here is that we understand the disease a lot more, and we feel much more well-equipped now to go after, you know, what we see as a very complicated disease process. I think the other part of this is that we're looking more at Alzheimer's disease and other related dementias like we would a cancer or high blood pressure or diabetes. A lot of people who have these sorts of illnesses are treated with more than one therapy. Um, If you have someone you know with cancer, they usually don't tell you they're on, they've been treated with one medication. Usually there's a whole arsenal of things. So we're getting to that point right now where we're gonna start to do things in combination very so good on multiple fronts so this is encouraging for us
0: martin we have about a minute left what final words of advice or other references would you like to leave with our listeners
2: one of the things i'd like to say is uh, where can you go for uh, honest straightforward uh, information I, I would recommend that you go to them log into the alzheimer's association they have a national chapter, uh, the national headquarters are in Chicago, um, but every state and even some of the smaller towns have their own uh, chapters on this, and uh, reach out. It's, it's a great source of information, everything from, you know, 10 signs to know about Alzheimer's disease to I have a little bit of a memory problem, the car key issue, for example, should I be worried, or, you know, where can I get tested for, for a genetic susceptibility? the the Alzheimer's place should be your first, second, and third place to go. they will be a a, a great resource for everybody. If you're at all, worried, be checked um, because there are a lot of times where you might have a memory problem, but it might not be Alzheimer's disease. It could very well be something else that could be corrected.
0: Martin, you have been a wonderful guest. I think as we learn more about this condition, we're going to have to have you back on. Thank you so much for your time.
2: I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Welcome back to the final segment of this episode of Dr. Doctor, where I will now answer the trivia question I posed at the beginning of the show. And that question is, what part of a human cell contains DNA that is only inherited from mom? You
1: know, it it seems like it should be fair, right? Where's the, cell, the part of the cell that only dad gets to give the child? But it doesn't work that way, does it?
0: <sighs> no, but Andrew... As uh, Simba's Uncle Scar said in The Lion King, life's not fair, Simba. <laughs> no, that part of the cell where the DNA is inherited only from mom is, as our producer knew, kudos to Andrea, the mitochondrion. The mitochondrion, or plural mitochondria, are the little powerhouses of the cell that make the energy we use. And the reason they only get it from mom is that when a sperm unites with an egg, there's only uh, about five molecules of uh, mitochondrial DNA in a sperm, and there are about 200,000 in the egg. So by sheer attrition, about all that's left is some of mom's DNA. Now, there are actually some diseases which are uh, inherited through mom's DNA. And in fact, uh, we talked about Alzheimer's in the the main part of the show, and they've shown that mitochondrial DNA has 10 times as many mutations in an Alzheimer's patient as does the regular DNA in the nucleus. So. This is something to talk about maybe at cocktail parties, if you get bored. It's the mitochondria (laughs) is from mom. M for mom, M for mitochondria. Well, now we're going to move to our segment on the Lineker for the Laity, the Lineker Quarterly being the Catholic Medical Association's Medical Moral Journal. And today we have with us from Marquette University, Dr. Richard Faring. He's a doctor in nursing and for many years has been one of the foremost world experts in natural family planning. Dr. Faring, welcome to Dr. Doctor.
3: I am happy to be here and be able to talk with you.
0: Well, we're happy to have you. And the Mm -hmm. uh, initiative for this particular discussion is an article published in the May 2018 issue of the Lineker Quarterly on the influence of contraception on the reproductive health of adolescents and young adults. And in this 50th anniversary year of Humanae Vitae, this is very important. And, you know, being in medicine... Uh, Andrew and I, and so do you, hear that health professionals say that there is a dire need to provide adolescents and young adults with oral contraceptives, condoms, hormonal implants, IUDs to prevent all these horrible things, including pregnancy, which some people think is horrible, abortion and sexually transmitted diseases. So, in light of this prevailing secular view, what led you and your colleagues to perform this study?
3: Well we read that among the uh, young adults and adolescents that actually pregnancy rates have gone down, but they're still high but um, but sexual activity is continues to be very high among this group but there's other things to look at in regards to uh, overall health of adolescent um, and and we know that health professionals have a tendency of providing hormonal contraceptives to treat various problems that could be used by treated other ways such as acne and PCOS and things like that. Um, We we just believe that having health professionals providing hormonal contraceptive, which was designed to prevent all these things, and the condoms, we think it actually is just the opposite. I think health professionals by providing these uh, drugs and everything with adolescents sort of gives them a sense that it is a normal activity being sexually active as adolescents and young adults. But um, both uh, Dr. Bouchard, who is a family medicine doctor from the University of Calgary, and Dr. Maria Myers, who is a pediatrician, we believe the opposite in that providing hormonal pills actually leads to more likelihood of a pregnancy, abortion, and sexually uh, sexually transmitted diseases and in particular unhealthy sexual behaviors like intercourse outside of committed relationships multiple sexual partners and early sexual debut and those are all risks for having sexually transmitted diseases
0: so you looked at Um, almost 1400 women 15 to 21 years old what did you discover
3: well this is um we use a, a national data set the national survey of family growth which is a federally funded, we pay our taxes for this data center. It has over 3,000 variables in it and it's population based. So when we talk about these findings, they apply to all, well, all the 15 to 21 year olds that we looked at. Yes, we looked at 1,367 never married females 15 to 21 years of age. Um, and what was your question? I think I lost it. Well, what did
0: you find? What, what did you oh. discover in this group?
3: Well, well, well. First of all, the um, we found it was approximately of that there was 39 uh, percent, or 40 percent, or uh, 546. 546 um, were using the pill. Were on the the contraceptive pill. Um, 821 were not ever used a contraceptive pill, and we found that those on the pill, 81% were sexually active versus those never used the pill, only 37% were sexually active. Huh. Um, however, the other findings that I thought in regards to looking at STDs, we found a three times more likelihood of those who ever used a pill to have had an STD in the past 12 months, have also a pelvic inflammatory disease, pregnancy and 10 times the likelihood of having an abortion compared to those that never use oral contraceptive. Now, those are big likelihoods. 3 times, you know, if you even if you found like 20% increase among other things like behaviors for heart disease and and that it gets published widely. So, so these are big figures. We also found that they were seven times more likely to be sexually active.
1: So the point i guess or what you oh. guys have learned from this study is that even though the medical community says taking oral contraceptives will help prevent these things you guys actually yes. found a three times increased risk
3: yes what, what do you think it, accounts for w- that well well they also there's a increase of risky sexual health behaviors there's earlier sexual debut we found earlier sexual debut by two years for those that are ever using the pill Greater number of sexual partners we know that the more sexual partners you have, the more likelihood you're going to have STDs um, and and, um, and about four to one end they had yes about four sexual partners on average compared to one those never on the pill do you,
1: do you think some some adolescents may knowingly or unknowingly perceive uh, being prescribed a contraceptive as a tacit endorsement for sexual activity?
3: Yes. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say before. I think health professionals, you know, that they're a, uh, role models, they're powerful, they're um, uh, uh, authority figures. So by giving them the pill, I think it lowers the, I, I idea other studies and why um, adolescents are sexually active or not sexually active is fear of pregnancy and fear of STD. So if you take some of those fears away, you're lowering the barriers in regards to them more likely having it, um, having that, so.
0: So Dr. or Richard, There was an editorial locally here in Fort Wayne because there's a little brouhaha going on. The Planned Parenthood in town is closing its doors. It's not one that did abortions, but it's closing its doors. So a lot of people supportive of Planned Parenthood are saying, hey, you guys who want to see it closed want to see abortion decrease. Then why aren't you for, and this article written by a local (laughs) physics professor was, why aren't you providing long-acting reversible contraceptives? How would you answer this question?
3: (laughs) Well, that's the big push right now. If you think about these long-acting, are the IUD and the um, implants in that, so it's really the health professionals is controlling the behaviors. They feel that by not having any behavior, like taking a pill and forgetting it, by having the IUD and these um implant there's no behaviors you know, it's in control of the health professionals but women don't like being on these things and they like being off if it when they get off that's when they get pregnant now the iud and the uh, implant and that that's not protecting them against sexually tra- transmitted diseases um what? also <laughs> i have other done other studies with this this big um data sets, and we find that the more use of the pill, there's a greater likelihood of abortion and pregnancy. Right, you showed a 10-time risk here. Yes, yes. yes.
1: I I kind of wonder, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends LARCs, the long-acting contraceptives, for even girls as young as 12 or 13. I wonder how many of those children know that this may work for pregnancy, but it doesn't work for these other serious medical problems.
3: Yes, and, and that, and, and for 12 and 13, I think what happens is that these adolescents become emancipated minors, and that's out-of-control parents and everything. But you know, the other thing that we did find with our study, though, and other studies, is that we looked at the variables of importance of religion, uh, church attendance at least once a week, um, intact families. Um, we found that when you find that, those are, then those adolescents who go to church once once a week find religion important, and also are in intact families, there's less likelihood of um, STDs and sexual activity. How
0: much less likely?
3: Well, it's about, I would have to look about 60, 40 to 60% less likely.
0: Very good. And I know you have a follow-up study to this one. What did that discover?
3: Um... Well, we, well. if you notice, I said that, and this study was ever use of oral contraceptives. So you're wondering, well, what about current use? And, the, and you can pull out that also. So we pulled out current use of contraceptive methods by the same population, and we found pretty much the similar rates, but in regards to the sexual debut, sexual debut among those who are currently on contraceptive, was around age 16 versus those never using contraceptives or the, uh, the pill is almost 21. So you're delaying those, sexual, those risky behaviors for about four years. Wow. Just by
0: not giving them oral contraceptive pills?
3: Well, that's all I'm saying is there's there less likelihood. So if you right. want to be
1: sure that your kid is going out there and making bad decisions, go ahead and get him on the pill. Would that be a fair no, corollary? That, that's,
3: you're, low, you're right there. You're lowering, the, you're lowering the barriers. 16
0: years from 21. That's crazy. Yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, are there any
3: final
0: no. uh, pieces of information you'd like to leave with our listeners, Richard?
3: Well, I mean, the other thing is that um, both, both I and Dr. Bouchard and uh, Myers would look, rather have these women learn and these young adults will learn about their body, about their fertility, th- the menstrual cycle is actually, and ovulation is actually a vital sign for these young women and to be able to appreciate their fertility and protect their fertility for future marriage, future pregnancy and that. So, you mentioned vital the, sign.
0: How many yes. young women have heard that term used? Like <laughs> blood pressure is a vital sign, heart rate is a vital sign. So the menstrual cycle is a vital sign.
3: Oh, very much so. It's, it's an indication. And I read... Um, Menstrual cycles, I have an online site where about 10,000 women are charting their cycles, and I read them every day, and there's so many different health problems and things that you can pick up. I mean, as soon as the menstrual cycle is out of kilter, you know that something's going wrong.
0: Richard Faring, thank you so much yes. for being with us today. <laughs> this has been very enlightening. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios in Fort Wayne, Indiana of Redeemer Radio. If you'd like more information on the Catholic Medical Association, find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's c-a-t-h-m-e-d.org. Thanks for listening to Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern
1: and Dr. Andrew Malali signing off until next time. And remember, please, your medical decisions may have profound consequences, so choose wisely. Choose Catholic. Next week on Dr. Doctor, Dr. Saad Jazrawi will discuss the rise of gluten sensitivity and how changes in diet affect people's health. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1 or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com
0: slash doctor and in the Redeemer Radio app.